I always like to start a presentation with a little bit of history because history sometimes has a habit of teaching us lessons. And so just very briefly, I'd like to give you a snapshot into the year I joined the wine trade, which was 1976, a scary long time ago. And um, believe it or not, um, bulk wine was certainly in the ascendancy in 1976, but it was a very different beast to uh, the wines you see today. Uh, because in, in, in that decade, you were able to ship uh, wines, high quality wines from France, you could ship Barzac, Sauterne, Saint-Emilion, Chateauneuf de Pape. Uh, all in bulk, multi-compartmental stainless steel tanks and, and bottle in the UK. Um, in addition to that, uh, there was a vast amount uh, of a wine called Lasky Riesling from Yugoslavia, which was also very big in the 1970s. And there were two major bulk wine terminals in the UK, one at New Haven and the other at Shoreham in Sussex. And these bulk wine terminals, wine would arrive, um, okay, it was sherry, sherry would arrive in ships' tanks and be pumped out of ships' tanks into a warehouse. And soon after I joined the trade, I witnessed one of the most spectacular accidents that I must share with you. Um, the ships' tanks were about 400 meters away from the warehouse, and in between the dock, where the boat was, was, was docked uh, and the bulk warehouse, there was a railway line. And in order to get it from the ship's tank to the warehouse, there were two pumps. And you had to synchronize switching on these two pumps. So there was a pump to take it from the ship's tank to the top of the bridge across the railway line. And the second pump would then draw that wine down into the warehouse. We weren't aware at the time that within the warehouse um, some electric works was, being, was actually taking place and the third phase within the warehouse had been switched the other way around. For those of you who work with three-phase electricity, you know what I'm talking about. So what actually happened is when the wine started to take, come out of the, when the sherry started to come out of the ship's tank, it got to the top of this gantry above the third rail railway and at that point, the pump which was supposed to take it into the warehouse started to pump it the other way. And there was a spectacular explosion and it caused absolute chaos, um, not only in terms of loss of, loss of sherry, uh, but also because it was third rail electricity, i.e. the third rail electric was on the ground as well. So uh, it caused absolute chaos and something I will never ever forget. Um, there, is, there, is a, there is a message in that in terms of, in terms of how big bulk wine was and at that time the warehouse at New Haven used to ship used to transport around 20 by 25,000 litres daily out of the New Haven bulk terminal so a significant volume at that time um, as I say bottling there were a number of bottling premises uh, in the UK and sadly in the let's say late 70s early 80s there was this theme in the industry that bottled at source was better. And sadly, there were the demise of many bottling operations, not only in the UK, but in other parts of Europe as well. There was a game changer. 
which started, let's say, late 90s, early 2000, and that game changer was flexi tanks. And I have to pose the question, were flexi tanks launched a little too soon? Because in the early days of flexi tanks, there were some challenges, some serious challenges, obviously many advantages in terms of cost saving, etc., etc. But there were um, a lot of problems with migration. And migration, I'm sure a number of you in the audience will be well aware that one of the migration problems was naphthalene. And naphthalene is a fumigant which is used in, in much of uh, transporting goods around the world. And as a scientist, I think it would be fair to say that incomplete due diligence was actually performed because having been privy to and seeing a number of the experiments which were performed, if you actually look at migration work, migration, i.e. you have a barrier and you have something outside the barrier and you have a liquid inside the barrier, the barrier should actually prevent what's outside going into the liquid. And one of the uh, experiments uh, I was, I actually looked at the data in terms of temperature, the actual temperature profile only went up to 30 degrees centigrade. Now, in terms of uh, transporting goods from the southern hemisphere to the UK, the temperatures will get considerably higher than 30 degrees centigrade. What happens when you increase temperature? You increase the porosity of the membrane, so what's outside can go inside more easily. And unfortunately, an awful lot of wine had to be destroyed at that time. If it were not so serious, I also witnessed some attempt to try and prevent this. And one, again, I remember very vividly was, oh, Jeff, we've found this way of preventing migration. We've put a bag around the bag. Now, the bag <laughs> turned out to be a giant plastic bag which was stuck together with tape. Now, I don't think many of you will appreciate that that is not going to have any impact on what is going through there at all because it's going to work its way around that barrier very, very easily. There was a gradual improvement in, in flexes um, and uh, fortunately and happily um, it didn't impact the amount that was actually uh, uh, shipped and it would be fair to say that we haven't seen any naphthalene issues for at least five years. So the technology has improved dramatically and absolutely delighted about that. Um, there are still challenges and it's important I portray these challenges as positively I, as I can because I'm a great believer in, in bulk transport. The new challenges I would have to say is in the broadest, broadest heading, heading are most related to cost. And cost I'm talking about in terms of preparation of the wine, i.e. loading speed, filtration, and some changes in winemaking styles. I'll come back to the winemaking styles in a minute, but talk first about the actual um, filtration and speed of loading. All these things are actually interrelated because if you look at data in terms of wine, wines are gradually getting sweeter. A number of red wines, you may or may not be aware, are often over five grams per litre sugar. Now, 
we have actually seen some of these wines re-ferment in a flexi. We get called on to see the industry's problems and challenges. And in order to ensure that bulk wine is transported wherever it's transported to without any problems, you need to ensure that that wine is as devoid of microorganisms as it possibly can. And of course, if you sterile filter, you're going to reduce the flow rate unless you have a number of cartridges in line. And unless, but unless you do sterile filter, um, you will find some, some, some yeast uh, in the end product. And never underestimate what yeast can do. We've actually seen, witnessed flexes which have arrived in the UK fermenting less than 10 grams per litre, some around 5 grams per litre, and building up, in, up enough pressure for the flexes to enlarge enough because they're a sealed bag, and they're large enough to actually push the metal sides of the container out. So you have a very considerable pressure inside there. And again, from other work we have performed, as I mentioned, seeing some of the industry's problems and how powerful some of these yeast are, I'm talking about bottled goods now, and again, another occasion I will never forget is a batch of vintage port, 20% ABV, re-fermenting in bottle. So if it's able to re-ferment at 20, it is certainly going to ferment at 14% uh, with a bit of sugar. So quite staggering that this particular yeast strain could ferment something that alcoholic. So never underestimate the bugs. I mentioned here changes in enological practices. Now, what do I mean by changes in enological practices? If we look at data, and one of the factors I like to look at in terms of wines of the world, and we're in a very privileged position to see many, many wines in the world, something like around 5,000 per year, so we perform some data crunching so we can look at trends. And one of the trends we're noticing at the moment, not only in bottled goods, but in bulk goods as well, is a gradual reduction in free SO2. Not a problem per se, but if you have a very resistant yeast strain in there, it's more liable to ferment. I mentioned earlier about the, um, the, about the, 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 the sugar. Sugar is another factor which will enable that, and that there are a couple more as well, which hopefully I'm not getting too techy here. Um, but if you look at the pH of the wine and the total acidity of the wine, pH is gradually increasing in many areas of the world. So what happens with the increasing pH? You, get, you have an equilibrium between your free and your bound SO2. If you've got a wine with a high pH, for the same amount of sulfur you add to it, which can act to help inhibit re-fermentation, you will get less free, free SO2, so that's less inhibition. Um, I hope I've got that across to a number of you in the audience, but it's looking at the product holistically. So this combination of um, higher sugar, some filtration problems, uh, looking at the pH, it's important to look at the wine as a whole to make sure that what you're shipping is uh, as stable as it possibly can be. There are a couple of other products which 
Um, again, a number of times, uh, uh, one of our clients on receipt of a bulk wine would call us and say, oh, Jeff, we've got a filtration problem. Um, it, this wine fails our filtration index testing. What's going on? And of course, during, in winemaking, there are uh, a number of perfectly legal and perfectly good additives which you can use, one being gum arabic, which will impact on filtration. Another is carboxymethylcellulose, CMC, which is used a great deal. Um, and one which has recently been approved by the OIV, which is potassium polyaspartate, which has a similar mode of action in terms of uh, inhibiting tartrate formation as wine. Now, all these are uh, compounds which are added to wine and increase, in the broadest term, increase the molecular structure of the wine, so it makes it more difficult to filter. But the problem is that if you then pre-filter that wine, before you bottle it, you're taking that product out of the wine. So uh, again, something to be very uh, wary of when, you're, when you're, um, you're, you're shipping bulk wine with specs. The future. Changes in journey times and temperature. Um, again, if I could look at this for, and the, in terms of the potential for things going wrong, it would be fair to say, on average, I believe journey times are getting longer in terms of shipments of all wine. So this it just isn't about bulk, this is about all, all wines. Many wines are taking longer. And temperatures in transit is also a slight concern as well. And I have really, um, I've got through this a little bit quicker than I had planned to, but perhaps a plea at the end uh, in terms of if there is a new process, a new procedure, a new illogical material, um, it would be wonderful if correct and, and full due diligence were performed before this product were launched or before this process happened because I'm a firm believer that if there are any problems in our industry in terms of wines that go wrong or something, then that to me is negative and I think that's very bad for our industry as a whole. So um, I've managed to cram, I think, quite a lot of techie information in there into a quite short period of time, so I'd be very happy to take any questions from you. I half know the answer to this question, but I thought it might be interesting to ask it anyway, because other people might not. At the beginning of your talk, you were talking about naphthalene getting into the wine in the flexi tanks. Yep. Now, obviously, the, tanks, the, the flexi bags aren't used, um, allowed to come anywhere near naphthalene. So how does it get in, in contact with the bag? Um, it, it is actually in the, how can I put it, the surrounding air inside the metal container. Is that because the containers are used for other things such as, um, I think it was clothes, wasn't it? They were coming halfway across the world and treated with the mothball, which is the source of naphthalene. There is that, and also containers, empty containers. Uh, I mean, naphthalene is, it kills insects. It kills nasties and perfects, perfects 
nasty insects traveling the world. So a number of uh, materials will have uh, mothball-type products based on naphthalene. So think if you, if you have, um, you know, or, 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 you know, or even within a ship's hold itself. Uh, so just, just imagine you have an environment where um, something has been sprayed to kill insects. Um, that metal box then warms up it's inevitable that some of it is going to come into the atmosphere. So when I talk about migration, it is basically from the atmosphere. So it's not contact per se, it's within, within the, at the atmosphere. Uh, but I must emphasize that, that that is now, yes, it was a problem, but that has now been, as far as I'm concerned, has been resolved. Thank you. Sorry, it feels like I'm being interrogated. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, you, men you mentioned um, that there was a downward trend in free SO2. Yeah. Uh, do you think that's linked in any way to an upward trend in, or increasing residual sugar levels in wine? It's a good point, Chris. Um, it, it may well be related. Uh, it may be consumer pressure, just reducing so 2 levels in general. Um, you know, I'm not an advocate for uh, excessively high free sulfur dioxide levels, but I think we need to be a bit sharp in terms, out, in terms of working out what is the correct level for that particular wine rather than a blanket approach. And in terms of that particular wine, taking on board the alcohol content and the pH so that you look at the wine holistically and what do we actually want for that. What I tend to see with some companies is just this blanket approach. That's our spec for a white wine. That's our spec for a red wine. We need to be a little bit clever. Thank you. I, I think someone touched on this yesterday with regards journey times being longer. You just mentioned it there. Um, can you just elaborate on that and maybe give us a few examples of from A to B, from Australia to the UK, how and why? Um, re sorry, reasons um, I, I, I can't really comment on, but just being aware of in terms of what our clients have advised us in terms of a journey time, the journey times are gradually getting longer. Um, so uh, whether it is consolidation of consignments, um, but it, it's yeah, it's something to be wary to, to be wary of. And temperatures, temperatures as climate change, I guess, or anything else. I think much of it is uh, when it goes across the equator and how long it takes in an environment where it's warm, or for example, it could be on a quay somewhere. So it's quite difficult to um, look at it in terms of a post mortem, in terms of where was where did the actual problem problems happen. Um, but it's. Um, one of the things with, with any transport in a metallized container um, is you're going to get a residual temperature in that container. And um, I, I wasn't here to hear about Barry's presentation, but you know, the, the bulk versus bottled is a really interesting debate. And um, I'm not sure if Barry covered this, but if you actually look at the profile of temperatures in terms of bottle versus bag, bottles the temperature profiles go up and down because a bottle will cool down very quickly whereas a bulk you have a large thermal capacity it takes a long time to get up to a higher temperature but 
Oh, conversely, it takes longer to cool down as well. So with bottles, you're getting more up and down. Bulk is more consistent and more gradual change. Um, just, just you know, flagging it up as a point of point of concern. Thank you.